Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. In theory, school boards are supposed to give voters local democratic control over district schools. But do they in practice? Who runs for school boards? And how contested are most races? Are school board members rewarded for good performance and punished for bad performance? And how has this all changed since COVID, when, as countless news stories have suggested, school board decisions reached a new level of salience among parents? To discuss these questions and more, I invited Vlad Kogan and Brian Jacob onto the podcast. Vlad Kogan is a professor in the Department of Political Science at The Ohio State University. And Brian Jacob is the Walter H. Annenberg Professor of Education Policy and Professor of Economics at the Gerald Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. Vlad, Brian, welcome to the report card. It's great to be with you. Yes, thanks. Okay, so this episode, we want to talk about school board elections, but I've got to confess that even though I'm an education researcher, I feel a little short on what school boards do and what we know about them. So let's do the quick portrait of the basic facts of school boards. Um, Vlad, can you just lay this out for us? Why are school boards important? Yeah, good question. So I think first and foremost, because they spend a buttload of money, right? So ultimately, all the education spending that we do in this country, which is in, you know, in the hundreds of billions per year, it's ultimately all down, uh, allocated by the local school board. And that's one of the most important functions. They hire and fire the local superintendents who really make some of the key day-to-day decisions about how schools are run. And then they have tremendous policy influence. So they determine uh, disciplinary policy under what conditions students are suspended or not. And in many cases, they often uh, select textbooks. Sometimes they, uh, they have discretion over graduation requirements. So really almost every high stakes decision you can think of in K-12 education at the end of the day, the buck stops with the local school board. So, Brian, on this, there's a question about what they have governance over, what they're responsible for. But there's also the question of, yeah, but how much do they actually do? I mean, I can imagine a world where school boards have a lot of authority but don't use it a lot, and that actually the superintendents and so forth and what we could call the education deep state is actually doing a lot of the day-to-day stuff. Uh, how do we know about how much authority they exercise typically? Well, um, I mean, I think one important thing to keep in mind is even if they are not engaged in the kind of day-to-day decision-making, which I'm sure in many cases they're not, they um, hire the superintendent, which is an incredibly important and influential responsibility. And in doing so, I think they kind of pick someone that has, you know, views and objectives and kind of a a focus that is consistent with their their concerns. Um, I don't I've never kind of worked in like a like a school management uh, setting, but my guess is they don't have day to day, you know, small decision making influence, but you make their voices heard on a lot of important decisions, some of which that you know Vlad mentioned. Yeah, can, can I just jump in really fast? I think one reason we know that boards matter is that we have tremendous evidence from a a number of different studies that who serves on school boards matters. And when the composition of boards changes, policy changes and student outcomes change. And I think that's all the evidence we need to know that that they matter, that whatever they're doing, um, it it has real consequences for kids and their education. 
So if we think about corporate boards and how they're responsible for the operation at a very high level, are school boards analogous in some ways, maybe not others? What do you make of that comparison, Brian? I think that's probably a pretty good comparison. I mean, I think there's a a lot of variation in terms of how active boards, even in private firms, are. And I'm sure that's the case in the U.S. in terms of school boards. But, no, I I think they... uh, they are. And I, I agree with Vlad. Like, I mean, we, you know, we had talked earlier, you know, about how, how important are school boards and how can we know what they're really doing? And the fact that even if we don't see their day-to-day action, but we know that turnover of board members influences, you know, financial resource distribution, influences school attendance zone boundaries and student segregation patterns and important outcomes like that. I think that's, Uh, That's all we need to know. And if you compare the amount of investigation and research that's been done in different sectors of education, right? Like we know some things about teaching and learning and how principals act. How would you characterize the amount of research into school boards, given that, yeah, they are the governance structure that oversees $600 billion a year or so? Vlad? Yeah, yeah, I'm curious to hear what Brian thinks. So, yeah, I think I think not enough given given how important they are. And you know, we have um, surveys, and I think surveys are good for telling us about what the people who respond to surveys say, whether what they say is reality or not. I think to me is an open question. And then I think we've had really over the last decade some really nice single state case studies. So we know a lot about California because California has really good data. We know a lot about North Carolina because North Carolina has really good data. I think the challenge to studying school board school boards and school board democracy more generally is is the data issue, right? That these are local offices and in the United States, elections are totally decentralized. So if we want to know more beyond California and North Carolina, it takes a tremendous, tremendous effort to collect and standardize that data. And I think for that reason, uh, we don't know much because, because you know, I think very few people have kind of invested the time and resources to do that. Right. I agree. I mean, I think actually there's, you know, until very recently, little kind of large-scale quantitative analysis of school boards. And the studies that Vlad and I mentioned that are good, I think they're, they are focusing on things that are easy to measure in big you know, administrative data sets, like the composition of a school board, whether you, you know, there's a, another former teacher or educator that is elected to a school board. I mean, we don't have data on... You know, how often does the school board, you know, call up the superintendent? What sort of management practices does the school board uh, enforce upon the district? None of the kind of the micro details that we do that we would think would be important. I mean, we know curriculum and teacher evaluation systems and lots of structural things about schooling, but we just really don't know a lot about inside the black box of school boards. So this came about, uh, you know, we connected at this conference where you both did a paper, and we'll get to that in a second, but both of the papers are really about school board elections. And so uh, we talked a little bit about school boards, but there's a lot of things that we believe or that we think we know about why school boards are great and why they're a good way to govern these 14,000 school districts or however you want to count them. So, Vlad, what's that basic theory about why generally elected school boards are a good way to govern education and to have people able to have their say? 
Yeah, a great question. So I think uh, I think our kind of folk understanding of, of school boards and elections more generally, I think we have two mechanisms in mind. One is uh, what I would call kind of selection, right? That this is an opportunity for the community to elect representatives who share their values and, and their vision. And so it's really a way of translating kind of what the populace thinks uh, and getting people who agree with them. So that's one mechanism. I think the other mechanism is what we call accountability, that uh, maybe you didn't elect the best school board members, but they want to keep their job. And to keep their job, they're going to do what it takes to keep their constituents happy. And that will um, force them to be, be rep good representatives, provide a good education. Now, you know, uh, this is an area we've been working on for a while. And I think the evidence on both of those, even before we get into the more recent research, is, I think, really not, not very convincing. Um, you know, in terms of selection, that, that assumes that, that turnout is very high and that the kinds of people who vote look like everybody else and look like the students in particular. And that's not true. And in terms of accountability, that it assumes that voters are going to hold uh, incumbents accountable based on the things we want them to, which is the quality of the education. And that's really, I think, the topic for the more recent project that I'm happy to get into. So there's a lot of folks who will say, well, this is how local control happens, right? We have local control of education and we do it through school boards. So this whole theory of electoral accountability seems pretty central to our federalized education system, right? Well, uh... You know, it's interesting. I, I am not a political scientist by training like Vlad. And so when he was, uh, and I guess my, when I come to this, my default assumption wasn't that, oh, democracy and electoral systems, wow, they, yeah, they'll definitely uh, hold politicians accountable. Yeah, of course we should assume that. So I, I guess I, I think there's not as much evidence and I, you know, Vlad has done some work suggesting that school board elections may not hold, you know, the districts and the school boards accountable. I mean, I'm, I'm not particularly surprised by that. Uh, I may be, um, it, it may be less distressed. Uh, I, I think one, one thing that is interesting and I would be curious to hear what Vlad has to say on this, like there, you know, this has come up, you know, over the last maybe two decades or so, especially in large urban areas, there was a period of time where a number of big city school districts kind of shifted from popularly elected school boards to essentially something that's essentially mayoral control. And they may still have a board, but the majority of members are appointed by the mayor. And uh, I think that was a response to the ineffective kind of accountability of school boards, at least in, in that context. Um, so, yeah, it, it, I guess let me just jump in with one more, I think, important, uh, I guess, uh, idea. I mean, the reason why I think this matters is um, I think we have this unrealistic romantic attachment to local control. And here's, here's like, here's uh, like the concrete implications. So often when we talk about education reform, the most controversial reforms are really about changing governance. So Louisiana, after Hurricane Katrina, where the state came in and took over and turned it into an all-charter school district, or um, state takeovers of school districts, very controversial. And I think people that oppose those reforms have this gut feeling that, um, you know, that what about democracy? What about local democracy? That democracy, local control is used as a trump card. And the reason why I think understanding these questions is so important is we want to figure out how, how much weight do we put on that argument and are there real trade-offs and maybe is sometimes giving up that local control worthwhile. And let me just give you an analogy uh, because I think, you know, there's many other policy areas and one that I'm also interested in is housing. And I think housing is one area where now we have, pre I think, pretty good consensus that if what you want is more affordable housing, 
sometimes it's going to mean giving up local community control because what local community control does is it empowers incumbent homeowners who want to protect their property values and it empowers NIMBY voices and it leads to underdevelopment and really expensive housing. And we've decided that because we care about affordable housing, that trade-off is worth making. And I think it's important to have that same conversation in education, that if we care about having a good education system, we have to take seriously sometimes that maybe that might require giving up some local control and some of what we kind of you know celebrate in terms of local democracy. So let's get into some of the research that you guys have both done. And it bookends nicely because, Vlad, you deal with a bunch of earlier years. And, and Brian, you've been tackling some of the later years, not perfectly in the same way, but in complementary ways. But I think it's really interesting stuff because it raises questions about, well, how competitive is this electoral accountability So, Vlad, you tackled this in part by building the data that wasn't available. Give me a brief synopsis of your paper. Exactly. And I want to acknowledge the, uh, the generous funding we got from the Spencer Foundation that really paid for this effort. Um, of course, I'm not responsible for any, any, any of the content. But uh, so we spent, I guess, at this point, almost a decade really collecting local school board election data going state by state, county by county, in some cases, district by district, uh, filing records requests, digitizing these records, um, coding them. And so we have um, uh, basically for the years 2002 to 2016, we have data on 50,000 individual school board races in 16 states covering about 4,300 school districts. So this is, to our knowledge, um, the biggest data set out there on school board elections. But again, it ends in 2016. So that's the limitation, I think, because that's when we when we really started started collecting all those data. And so I'm happy to walk you through what we found. Um, it's, it's not going to be pretty, but I think it's important. Bring on the pain. All right. So, so what do we know? Okay. So there's really three, right, four outcomes we look at. Um, how often are elections contested? That is like, there's at least as many candidates, more candidates running than there are open seats. And shockingly, it turns out uh, only about 40% of all school board elections are contested. Uh, the majority are not. So when people think about like really hard fought school board elections where you have, you know, Moms for Liberty on one side uh, and, and teachers unions on the other, that's not the modal election. Uh, and so 40%, it's much less than state legislative elections. It's much, much less than congressional elections. So, so let me repeat, yeah. let me repeat this back. So it doesn't get lost. You're saying that over these 4,000 districts over a long period of time, less than half of the seats that came open had more than one person who was, you were able to vote for. Bingo, bingo. And that's probably, probably an overestimate because some elections are are canceled when there's not candidates running and we don't observe them in our data. Um, so that's probably a generous, generous count. So that's first finding. Second finding is um, more than half the time, the sitting incumbents don't run. They say, oh, it's not worth my time. And again, that's much, much less than we see at a state legislative and congressional races. But when incumbents do run, they, they win most of the time, about 83% of the time. And in fact, the typical election, contested election, so again, this is the minority, uh, the margin of victory is 38%. So that would make, uh, that's, a, that's a blowout. That would make like a dictator uh, very happy, right? That's not, that's not anywhere close to an election. And so when you combine all of this, uh, you have kind of a, a really kind of weird result, which is um, these elections are not competitive at all. But because incumbents often don't run, we see tons of turnover. In fact, 90% of the turnover we see is not because people lost an election. It's just because the incumbent decided not to run. And so we kind of have the worst case of, 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 of that you can imagine where um, you don't have a lot of um, electoral accountability. You don't have a lot of choice as the voter. 
but you also don't have um, the the you get a lot of turnover, you get a lot of churn, you get a lot of instability that's caused by board members going in and out. And that's that's what local democracy looks like in the context of education. And this is pretty crazy results, right? I mean, if we're thinking about this and that there's a lot of local control, I mean, there could be more local control, but it seems like there's the problem of not very many people want this job. And that includes a lot of the people who have the job. And because there's not a lot of competition for the seats, well, then voters, they just don't get much choice because their choice set is down to one. And so that makes a very difficult set of facts to defend school boards as a good source of electoral accountability. I mean, am I overstating the case? No, I think that's right. I think that's right. And again, especially when we're thinking about reforms uh, that could bring about some positive change that you know require giving up some of this control. I mean, it's not obvious to me how great this current system is and, and how much we should invest in defending it um, when there are these trade-offs. So we're going to go to Brian in just a minute here about how we might see more competitive or at least more participation in these races. But were there some factors, Vlad, that were associated or maybe not associated with when you had competition, right? So, you know, we've heard about some of these school board races in Los Angeles, and it's like, well, they put millions of dollars in and it was a huge deal. Now, you've said that's not typical, and I get that. It's Los Angeles. But certainly in some places, there's competition. Yeah, that's right. So in terms of predicting where elections are likely to be contested, uh, here's what we know. Uh, So it's really in the larger districts. Um, and the districts serving more students of color and more English learners. Uh, those are the places where we tend to have contested elections. Now, I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing because a contested election means just potentially more turnover. So I think contestation in it by itself doesn't necessarily mean better outcomes. It could mean worse outcomes if it means more churn, if it means more board turnover leading to more superintendent turnover. Uh, but it doesn't appear to be driven by performance. So it's not the case that uh, challengers look at the student test scores and say, this is outrageous. We need to do better because they don't run more in districts where, where students are learning learning less. Uh, that's not a, a consideration in their decisions to run as far as we can tell from the data. So Brian, you pick this up post pandemic and from a slightly different angle, but um, look, there's this popular narrative. I think a lot of people hear about book bans and they hear about Moms for Liberty and all these other things. And there's lots of conflict at school boards, meetings and so forth. So there's a rise in parent activism and interest in education. Um, you looked at what happened after the pandemic. Can you lay out what got you interested in this and what did you pursue? Oh, yeah. Well, I've, as you know, I've been looking, I've been studying education policy for years, but not necessarily school boards. Um my interest was peaked because I had three children attending our local public schools during COVID. And, you know, I suddenly realized, hmm, school boards have a very important impact on my life. And I, along with the rest of the world, kind of saw the board struggle with, I think, what was very challenging decisions and times with school opening and masking, and then kind of the political polarization and other parts of society kind of merging with COVID and creating this kind of perfect storm of chaos and partisanship. So I was, I think I just came to it very curious, did all of this like have any impact on elections where people, uh, I mean, I, I guess this was like, you know, a, a maybe a, a test case of, you know, if anything could influence people to get out and vote, you would think that this would. 
And so I, uh, I was not nearly as ambitious as Vlad. I, I looked and found uh, Ballotpedia, which is an organization that collects school board election data from uh, you know, several hundred school districts. It's really the larger school districts in the U.S., but not, not entirely those. And compiled the data set from 2018 to 2022 and was asking the basic question, well, just how, how did school board elections change? Trying to control for some factors, but basically just a descriptive analysis and ended up finding that you know, school board elections were more likely to be contested post-COVID. They were about you know, 11 percentage points, you know, 25% more likely to have more than one candidate running. And then when there was a contested election, voter turnout increased substantially in elections post-COVID. And this is, depending on the specific specification, anywhere between 25 and 50 plus percent increase in voter turnout. So I think that, you know, that suggested that this this did engage people, at least kind of in the short run, where, you know, I think one interesting question is that this was only to 2022, you know, as the pandemic is further in our rearview mirror, will this engagement continue? I think it's, it's yet to be seen. And yeah, so then I, you know, looked a little bit more, you know, the areas in which the turnout seemed to increase the most. Turnout increased more in highly educated school districts, increased more actually in Republican-leaning school districts, and actually increased, let me make sure I get this right, it increased, you know, less in school districts that had uh, lost enrollment during COVID. Let me make sure I get that right. Yeah, what, well, actually, yeah, ones that had... Um, greater enrollment losses had uh, smaller increases in turnout. Right. So your motivating interest in this was, man, if if we're ever going to see an increase in attention to school boards and voter participation, this should be it. Tell me a little bit about the baseline here, because I mean, that seems important. Now, look, I'm going to guess that compared to congressional elections, school board elections are getting like you know, just a fraction of the turnout. So oh, yeah. the increase. You're, you're right. This is, I mean, well, I think, and Vlad will know this better than I will, but I mean, the, even in like there are sample that we used, which is kind of more inclined to have higher turnouts, the baseline pre-COVID turnouts were just still like a bit over 50%. And I think like Vlad had said, that's consistent with those types of districts, even in earlier. So, I mean, this is, even in the districts with more turnout, it was still only 50%, um, or I'm sorry, uh, contested. That's contested elections. Um, right. uh, no, turnout is much, is much lower than that. So it's, it's from a very low baseline. Yeah, yeah. If I could just jump in, I think, you know, one thing we know about turnout is it, the, the biggest factor uh, is really election timing, right? That if you want high turnout score elections, have them in November of even years. Uh, if you want low turnout, have them at any other time. And everything else that we're talking about, it's all rounding error. Like, uh, election timing matters like orders of magnitude more. Um, and so I, I wanted to jump in really fast and just, just kind of talk to Brian for a second. So, you know, I, I found this paper really interesting. And, and so I, I think actually our results are very consistent because he's looking at the largest districts 
And when we look at the same kind of largest district in our sample, they look very similar. So as I mentioned, the biggest determinant of contestation is district size. And so these are already districts that, that tended to be more competitive. I think one thing I found fascinating, Brian, I, I'm curious what you think is you found uh, increases in turnout. Um, you found increases in contestation, but I don't think you found actually increases in incumbents losing, right? Uh, and so it's interesting, right, that, 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 you know, if this is the best case scenario for democracy, it, it, you know, the one outcome we actually care about, which is the outcome of the election, it, it didn't seem to matter to, to change that much. And I'm just curious how you interpret that and what you think about that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, I don't, it certainly generated lots of interest and engagement, although there was engagement of people on all sides of the issue, um, those that probably would have supported incumbents and those that were not so happy and would not have supported incumbents. So it was, yeah, I don't, I, although I, I would love to kind of just broaden this discussion. Um, I mean, I am, you know, again, not as a political scientist. I mean, I, I wonder, well, a few thoughts, like you, this strikes me, school boards strike me more as like a kind of the model of our academic institutions. You know, when the time comes time to pick a new department chair, it's really the last one left in the room that gets uh, that assignment. And it's really viewed as necessary service and everyone has to take their time doing it. And, you know, I'm not sure if in that case elections, which require, I mean, I guess this is a broader question about democracy and voting you know, if we're going to have elections, like, and people are going to be focusing on things that might be less central to the true outcomes of schooling, is the fact that we have a few dedicated people who are willing to kind of sink their time into helping oversee our public schools, is that necessarily worse than vicious uh, elections where it is tooth and nail to find someone who really wants the job? I mean, I, I just want to you know throw that out there um, as a thought. Yeah, I, I love that analogy. I mean, I think you're right. Like being department chair is kind of like picking straws. Uh, again, hopefully, there's no deans listening. But I also, I also think the other dimension where there's similarities that that only people who find those jobs attractive are exactly the people you don't want in those jobs. And I, I fortunately, I worry that we have the same issue in school boards, right? That uh, given how unpleasant that job is, uh, I think you see that in the lack of competition. But I think you also see that the kinds of people that are willing to run are probably not running for the right reasons, right? They are either egomaniacs or they're trying to, uh, you know, lay lay um, some foundation for running for city council or state legislature. Uh, but I think in either case, uh, are they necessarily well equipped to to deliver results for students? And I guess where it matters, and, and, and again, I'll pose to, pose to both of you, see what you think is, you know, okay, what's the counterfactual? Like, what's the alternative? And I think we have alternatives, right? When we have uh, models of school choice that empower parents directly. And the criticism of that always is, well, what about local democratic control? What about having, you know, having uh, kind of a, a shared political experience? But given the reality that we're talking about, you know, it does, to me at least, make the school choice models seem attractive. Uh, and, and at least it makes the, the counter argument that, well, what about local control less of a kind of trump card to play in these debates? Um, because if, if local control it doesn't seem to work that well, then you know, giving up a little bit to to maybe accomplish something good is maybe not that big of a, a price to pay. One thing I certainly agree with is like the importance of the counterfactual. I mean, it's like relative to what? And I was thinking, 
you know, my read of the evidence is that, you know, in with some of these big city school districts, mayoral control, you know, was at least as good for observable student outcomes as school board control. I'm not, I, but I think that's probably, you know, I'm sure others would disagree and I'm not sure there's great evidence, but I think it was not a bad shift in many cases. Um, when I look to cases like school district takeover, I think that's all over the map. I mean, I think a lot of times it is, you know, result in really bad outcomes. I mean, certainly in Michigan, I think there's a few cases that I know of, but only a few, like in Massachusetts and, you know, where uh, state takeover had a really positive effect. So I don't, I, I think the kind of, the counterfactual matters matters a lot, like relative to what? It is a good point, I think, that the counterfactual is not the theoretical vision that we so often have, right? Like people are, you know, they elect their school board members and they have a lot of choice through that because they pick from a range of offerings and they pick somebody who reflects it. You know, you are offending deans, I'll offend school board members across the nation. I mean, a lot of these people are folks whose spouses couldn't convince them to not take the job, right? And that is not a great recipe for electoral accountability, and it's a particular problem, uh, Vlad, I think you mentioned this in your paper. Look, in some places, teachers' union endorsements are going to carry a long way for particular candidates. And we've seen with Moms for Liberty and some of these other conservative groups that they're coming from the other side. And they're like, no, we're going to take down these board members who are part of the establishment and so forth. And those are pretty stark choices when we do have them. And it just raises questions about how those things are going to flow into some of the practical ways that boards could operate smoothly and also build the institutional capacity to lead a district without a ton of turnover. Um, So the lack of competition seems like a really important point when you can play this trump card of local control most of the time for any other arrangement. I would say lack of competition, and despite that massive turnover, right? So you get really get the benefit of neither continuity nor nor a real democratic competition. So yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I agree with you. And I guess, you know, where I come down thinking about this is, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm much less wedded to particular governance institutions. And I think too much of our debate is really focused on the mechanisms and I'm much more focused on the outcomes. Like, what is it we want education to, to, to achieve? And obviously, that's a complicated question where reasonable people disagree. But I think everybody agrees, for the most part, we want kids to be able to read. I think they agree, for the most part, uh, that they want, want kids to be able to do some basic math. And so for me, you know, if we can get those outcomes, if we can achieve those outcomes, at least the subset of the outcomes where, really, I think we have societal consensus, if that requires giving up a little bit of local democratic control, to me, at least, it seems like a pretty, pretty good deal. Again, I think given the fact that we, we have been ma- willing to make that, uh, that concession in other places like, again, housing policy. All right. Well, it's time in the episode for Grade It. Are you ready? Let's do it. Sure. Vlad, direct democracy. Ooh, um, I think pretty good. Probably, you know, not, not, not as good as, as uh, kind of the ideal model, but um, 
I think it's, it provides a mechanism for voters to really address excesses. And we see that in my state of Ohio, where I think probably the state legislature is far to the right of the median voter. We also see that in my former home state of California, where I think the state legislature is far to the left. And in both states, we have seen uh, direct democracy being used, I think, with a great, great success to really move policy closer to what, what the average voter wants. So I got a, uh, that was like an B plus, essay grade. B plus, B okay, plus. B plus, fair enough. Brian, COVID cash transfers to families. Uh, I think generally good. I think um, maybe B, B minus. I mean, I think it was, a, I think a, there was a lot of, a lot of potential for just catastrophic outcomes when the economy tanked and the fact that poverty rates declined during COVID, once you take into account the cash transfers, you know, saved a lot of unnecessary suffering and kind of helped buoy the economy. I think it was, you know, now in, in hindsight, I think like it, it did, you know, contribute to some of the inflation that we've been trying to fight in the last year or two. And like many things, when you're trying to roll out a policy in real time for hundreds of millions of people, there, there was some money that slipped through the cracks, um, and that's problematic. But you know, I think we would have seen uh, a lot worse outcomes for society if there wasn't some sort of government support during that period. All right, Vlad, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. How about accountability in charter schools? Ooh, yeah. Um... Depends on the state. So I think in my home state of Ohio, we went from, I think it was an F, we were the Wild West for charter schools, to I think now really closer to like a B, A minus range. We had tremendous improvements. And it really, my, my colleagues have done evaluations. And now, particularly in urban areas, the charter schools are providing better education than, than the neighborhood schools, not just in terms of test scores, but really in terms of uh, fewer suspensions, better attendance. So um, I think if, if more states were like Ohio, and really, again, uh, had the courage to bring about some accountability, we'd be in a great place. Unfortunately, not all of them are. Brian, no child left behind. Mm, uh, and you've done a good bit of work on this. So I have. I have, I've done, um, uh, I have to say, like, I, I am, I think that it did, did a lot of good. Um, I think kind of forcing schools and uh, communities to look at student outcomes and not inputs and to look at them separately by student subgroups so that a school that was on average performing well but miserably failing its students of color or students with disabilities didn't get a pass. I think that had a lot of benefits. I think there some research I've done has shown it led to substantial increases in elementary math scores, especially among like the lowest achieving students. But, you know, it was clearly not going to take us all the way to educational nirvana. Like you cannot accountability your way into everybody uh, learning as much as you uh, would like. So it was valuable, but insufficient. So did you get a grade out? I would say a B plus. Fair enough. Vlad, the way ESSER funds were set up by the government. Uh, F, F minus. Uh, zero accountability, zero data collection. And I think the return on investment, given the amount of money, ac the academic return on investment, I think has been minimal. So, you know, I, I think uh, you asked Brian earlier about 
yeah, the individual aid, I would have much rather taken the ESSER money and given it to families. I think it would have done much more good there than the amount of good we got giving it to school districts. Brian, online credit recovery courses. Oh, can I give something less than an F? Can I give like a, a P or a Q or something? Um, I mean, I think like virtual schooling, I would say either at like the high school level or the post-secondary level, at least has been kind of traditionally practiced, is not uh, been associated with kind of strong learning gains. I mean, I think maybe the one caveat would be that providing opportunities to get, if it, if it is something rather than nothing, I guess that is a benefit. But if it is online versus not online, I would say it's a far inferior product. All right. Uh, well, we'll leave it there with Grade It. Let's get back to the conversation on school boards. After November, I read several pieces in the national press that basically said the Moms for Liberty cohort got their clocks cleaned. And the numbers are hard to come by. I actually asked for them and couldn't quite get them. But Moms for Liberty said they had a 44% success rate in the elections where they were running that were contested. And so I think the argument in these articles was, see, they were losers. But when we look at the landscape that we're looking at, I wonder how should we handicap that kind of reporting is 44% actually potentially not so bad. What would you want to know more about to read whether um, those kind of numbers are successful or not? Vlad? Yeah, I mean, I think we want to know the denominator, right? We want to know all the races they considered and ultimately did not end up running it because they knew they had zero chance, right? Uh, so I think that's one question. And second, how many of these elections that they won uh, were open races where there was no incumbent? Because winning an open race, uh, how many of these were even contested, right? Winning an uncontested race is pretty easy. So I want to see, you know, a heads-to-heads matchup uh, where you have, you know, real incumbents running in contested elections. And I think also where, you know, winning, uh, being a Monster Liberty candidate in a deep red district, you know, that's that's not that impressive. Being a Monster Liberty candidate that wins in a deep blue district, that I think uh, is a very different story. Yeah, it, it is very difficult to know because if you had a 44% rate or anything like that against incumbents, especially if they had support from the kind of folks that the Moms for Liberty candidates tend to go against, that seems like a pretty high rate. But of course, never trust self-reported rates on election results, I guess. Yeah, I certainly think that whole movement is hard to handicap. But let me ask you, Brian, about the idea of well, how might we get more people to run? I mean, look, maybe the best thing that we could do is not only have a discussion about this, but encourage listeners who, and I'm not just flattering them, are uncommonly smart, perceptive, and humane individuals. And, you know, how could we improve the chances that folks might want to serve on these bodies? Any thoughts? Wow, that is a good question. I think kind of just better information uh, about what school boards do and, you know, what the responsibilities are. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that was eye-opening for me, at least, was during COVID, attending many school board meetings and hearing what the discussion was and what the decisions were. I think it, you know, it did make me realize that there were kind of some 
interesting and important issues that were being debated, even aside from like the obvious school opening ones. And I think kind of the more people know that there is interesting and important stuff happening or could be happening, that might encourage more people to throw their hat into the ring. I don't know. It's a, uh, it's hard for me as speaking to someone who is not naturally inclined to uh, put myself out there in uh, electoral politics in any context. I, I think it might be hard to convince me, but, but maybe I'm not the one you want to convince. Vlad, any thoughts? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think I think we need to lower the barriers. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why you tend to get candidates from the same same places is because they have a lot of institutional support. Just the mechanics of getting on the ballot. You have to go out and get hundreds, maybe thousands of signatures. Uh, that takes, I mean, tremendous time and money. So really, um, if we can get groups out there that are not affiliated with the political parties, that are not affiliated with school employees, that are willing to help candidates of all stripes that who really share their passion for improving student outcomes and provide some of that infrastructure, provide the system and, and, and you know staffing to go out and get signatures, I think that would go a long way because right now the barriers to entry are so high that only people that are willing to pay them are probably, again, not the people we want in those positions. Yeah, I think that if you're on the PTA, then you should figure out who you and your folks are going to support, right? I mean, if we're going to have this as local control, it seems to me that it would make sense to build political coalitions at the school level. And that's where you might get candidates who actually care and are also connected to a network of people who might be particularly interested rather than having some outside political driver or the teachers union dominated or the institutional dominated ideas. Is that naive? I mean, I guess what, you know, what gives me pause is like, I love PTAs. I have a lot of friends that are members of them, but like people join PTAs because of what they want for their kid. And they want the program that their kid gets and they're not representative. So, you know, if you're going to get a lot of PTA uh, moms and dads running for school boards, you're going to be a lot of people interested in gifted and talented programs and uh, arts and theater and band, which are great. I love all of those. But uh, when we talk about the students who are served least well by public education, it's not those kids. It's not the kids whose parents are in the PTA. And I think that's the challenge, right? It's designing institutions to create incentives to serve the least well-served right now. So I want to get back to the other forms of governance. And we mentioned this to some degree, but how should these results shape the way we discuss mayoral takeovers or state takeovers. And we see these, you know, Mike Miles in Houston is sort of the story of the year, I guess, on this front. And that's a big deal. Houston's probably a competitive district, I'm going to guess, because it's one of these big cities. Uh, But Vlad, when you think about the typical discussions that we have about state takeovers, you know, Brian gave his take on it. How do you see those discussions in light of what we're seeing in the patterns in school boards? Yeah, I think my, my read of the evidence is similar to Brian's that I think on average, they probably don't do much. And there are some uh, outlier cases that are really good. And I think the challenge is we don't know ahead of time where we're going to get the uh, the good case or the average case. So, you know, I, I'm not optimistic on state takeovers, in part because state officials are also political officials that face, I think, many of the same challenges and incentives. Uh, you know, so, so that's not where I would put all my money. Again, I, I think a lot more about parental empowerment and school choice. And, and, you know, again, can we generate mechanisms of providing education that have some accountability mechanisms built in where those incentives are aligned to serve kids and particularly the least well-served kids? I don't think state takeovers do that. I think some models of school choice get us closer to that. They're not perfect. They have issues of their own. But I think in some cases, they do represent a big improvement on the status quo. 
Brian, any any thoughts to add on that? I mean, I think that governance can be important, but I think it it really has to be you know combined with other factors. I mean, kind of resources being a really important one. Um, and I mean, again, in the case of takeovers, I mean, there's a class of takeovers that are motivated by academic underachievement, uh, but also another class of takeovers that are motivated by financial troubles. But both of those, both the underachievement and the financial troubles, I think a large determinant of those is community poverty. I mean, yes, there's the occasion where like the superintendent was stealing money to buy a yacht and like, sure, I none of these large bureaucracies work particularly efficiently. And I have to say that probably true in all of the institutions in we work, in which we work as well, where we can point to lots of inefficiencies. But, you know, a district that is taken over because of financial troubles and debt because they don't have money to hire teachers, the state comes in, if they came in and actually provide additional resources, maybe with some accountability safeguards, great. But if they come in without that, I really don't see what the governance like piece is going to add. So I, I I am certainly not one where I think kind of money and resources are the only important determinant, but I think that really is the elephant in the room in a lot of these cases. And I think, you know, some of the issues with teacher labor supply that we've seen over the years, including like the, you know, the red for ed uh, campaigns and kind of the red state focus on let's actually pay our teachers a little bit uh, more so we can not have constant shortages. Um, I just, I think kind of governance discussions without focus on some other aspects is just, is not going to get us where we want to go. I got to jump in. So I I totally hear what Brian's saying, but I want to, I want to push back a little bit because I think, a lot of these issues are self-inflicted wounds, even even the financial issues, right? I mean, we have New Orleans that was so corrupt that the FBI set up a field office in the district administrative office because there's so many investigations. And we have many other districts that are facing financial issues because they are unwilling to close half-empty buildings. I, and I think all that goes to governance. And so, you know, I, I think when I look at New Orleans, when I look at Washington, D.C., I look at Denver, we see what we can do just by improving what's happening in the classroom seven hours a day, 100 days a week. And that's a hell of a lot. We can do a lot more. And I think if we say we can't improve education until we fix poverty, like we haven't, we've been trying to do that since 1960. And I, I just can't, I can't write off the next 60 years saying, you know, uh, stay tuned, your education will get better eventually. So I, I'm, I'm much more optimistic that we can really have an impact through governance through what's happening in the school building, you know, without, without addressing what I think are true, absolutely, you know, real uh, social and structural issues. Yeah. I I mean, I don't think it's an either or. And I, I mean, I certainly think that, you know, well, I, I think that like there has been, you know, a bunch of success with a a certain class of charter schools and I absolutely support, you know, school choice, you know, within a context of some accountability, which I, I am glad Ohio has managed to get. Michigan is not quite there yet. But yeah, I mean, I, right. So I guess I don't disagree. But I think the, 
I guess I, the only reason I would, the only thing I would might push back is I, my guess is if we could somehow quantify like the, the amount of like explicit graft and corruption that you're discussing, while it certainly exists, I've never, I haven't seen any evidence that it is on a national scale explaining the majority of financial difficulties school districts are in. I, I no, mean, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. I, I, mean, I, I, not, I agree. Yeah, we have, we have to, we cannot let the superintendent buy a yacht on the public dime. And I'm sure there are superintendents that buy those yachts, but that's really not the crux of the issue in the national education debate. I mean that's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. But I, I would I, I do I do think uh, in terms of spending priorities, you know, I think there's there's a lot of things we spend money on, including again keeping open half empty buildings where that's right. No, I, I agree. I, I think that's um I absolutely agree. So the spending question does bring up one thing that I want to ask, and that is these people usually don't get paid, right? And so how much of a problem is it when we want to say you know, you're in charge of on net six or seven hundred billion dollars and spend a year and kids lives, right? Or a big chunk of kids lives, which is probably even more valuable. Um, and we'd like you by and large to do it gratis. I mean, I get that paying can introduce problematic incentives as well. But what do you think? Maybe we should just, I mean, if you work on a corporate board, you don't always get paid, but you can get paid pretty well. I mean, is that naive? It seems kind of common sense. Brian, what do you think? Um, I don't know. I, I, it may not hurt, but I, I don't think that will be the solution. I mean, I think that sure you have, you pay, someone a few thousand dollars to compensate them for their time. That's not going to, you know, make up for the, all the potential challenge, you know, all the downsides of being on the school board uh, or going to entice like individuals that are highly competent with high opportunity costs to like, uh, you know, devote their time to school board governance. I mean, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, if I should jump in, yeah, I, I agree with Brian. I think it would not be at the very top of my list of reforms. I think in, in principle, it, of course, it makes sense that people should be paid for their time. But, um, you know, we have some very high paying school districts in Los Angeles. I wouldn't necessarily put them as a model of governance. And, you know, to the extent that we are going to entice candidates who are motivated by money, not obvious to me, that's better. And to the extent that we just have more candidates running and we have more turnover, uh, it's not obvious to me that's going to produce better outcomes, right? Again, we already have a lot of turnover. So it's not obvious to me that, that, that that's really what's the, you know what the problem is. So you know, I think it's an open empirical question to me, but it would not be anywhere near the top of my list of kind of low-hanging fruit reforms for improving student outcomes. I have a, um, just a, a something that just popped into my head, and I have no idea whether this would make sense. But what about trying to create positions on the board, a board, that are more focused in terms of their objective. If there was like a spot on every board for one or two people who are going to be kind of like overseeing the finances or kind of keep an eye and one or two people that were going to be, you know, helping direct the district in terms of looking at kind of outcomes in evaluation or research, having kind of different, I guess this gets back to, what are the board members doing? Are they just to literally to reflect the 
the opinions of the whole district parents and just like for every decision they take a poll and then reflect those interests directly or are they going to supposed to be exerting their own judgment and intelligence and uh etc well i think i think the system you describe we, we have in many places we have committees where it's a subset of the board that does things i think the main challenge is like the self-restraint and the self-control to stay in your lane right because i think it's very hard if you're there to oversee finances to not get involved when the buses are late every day or when uh some book is banned from the library right it's very hard to be like uh, yeah, it's not my not my lane. I'm just going to do the budget, right? Because uh, especially if you're elected official, right? I mean, it's like moss to a light, right? Uh, and so I think in principle, it's a great idea. I think implementing it in practice to me, it seems pretty challenging. Well, I think that one thing that is certain is that all the TikTok videos and videos on Twitter of comment periods in school board meetings is not doing a whole lot of good for uh, the effort of improving the quality of school board candidates or making the job look like an appealing one. So there is something to be said for at least giving lots of respect for the people who do value a boatload of time and energy in this effort. So in case my take has been anything less than appreciative, I'll just end on that one. Vlad Kogan, Brian, Jacob, interesting papers. Thanks for coming on to the report card to talk about them. Okay, great talking to you both. Yep, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guests, Vlad Kogan and Brian Jacob. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a moment to leave us a review so other people will find the show. As always, send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. Thank you.